Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. Coming up on the Money Beat podcast on Saturday, China's Renimbi will join a very exclusive club of currencies. What is it? Why does it matter? Why should you be interested? We have author Eshwar Prasad, who is who's just written a book called Gaining Currency, The Rise of the Renimbi. He is here in the studio to explain it all. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody out there in podcast land. Uh, I am flying solo today without Stephen Grosser, but not alone in the studio. And today we want to focus on the Chinese currency, the yuan, the renminbi. On Saturday, the renminbi will join a, a very exclusive club. It will become of what it will become part of uh, what is called what is the IMF's special drawing rights, special basket of currencies. It includes the dollar, the euro, the yen, and as of Saturday, will include the renminbi. To talk about that, to talk about what the significance of that is, to talk about how the renminbi has grown over the past years and how it might grow in the future, very fortunate today to have Eshwar Prasad, Cornell University professor and and rather prolific author, Eshwar, uh, who has a new book out. Uh, actually, I don't think it's actually on the book stands yet. I think it'll be coming out on the 11th. Is October 11th? Uh, any day now. Any day now. Uh, Gaining Currency, The Rise of the Renimbi. Eshwar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on, Paul. And I, sh- I probably should mention, folks, just in the complete, uh, just completely keeping me above board, uh, you did write a blurb for, for my first book that I wrote with Mike Casey. So you and I have a small history together in the past. So It was a very well-deserved blurb. Well, it's, I just want people to know that, you know, just so I don't want anyone to, like, hear this interview and then say, oh, my God, he blurred, you know, like, no, no, this, this interview is on the up and up and, and you know. Anyhow, I just wanted to get that out of the way. And also that, you know, folks, if, if I sound uh, ignorant at all, it's, it's because I am ignorant. Uh, I haven't had a chance to actually read the book yet. We, we really just got a chance to figure this out yesterday that we we're going to do this interview even. So this is kind of put together hastily, but I will try to keep up my end of the conversation. All sounds good. Okay. So explain to folks out there who might not be familiar with special drawing rights in the IMF, what is the significance of that for the Chinese currency? So the IMF's artificial currency unit, the special drawing rights, now has the four elite currencies in the world, as you mentioned, the U.S. dollar, the Japanese yen, the British pound sterling, and the euro. On October 1st, this Saturday, the um, uh, RMB, or yuan as it is sometimes called, will ascend to that basket of elite reserve currencies. So symbolically, it is a momentous event. It's momentous because China is still uh, a developing country, although it is a middle-income country and now the second largest economy in the world. But in terms of per capita income, it's still far behind the other advanced economies. So for an emerging market economy's currency to ascend into this elite basket is a sign that China has really uh, um, put its prominence uh, right at the center of the world economic stage. But at the same time, one should not overstate the um, importance of this. Many people have argued that this is going to be 
a game changer in international finance that the RMB uh, could end up rivaling the dollar, perhaps becoming one of the most important global reserve currencies, because after all, the Chinese economy is still growing very fast. Uh, it's now the second largest economy in the world, accounts for about 12% of uh, world trade and still continuing to catch up to the U.S. economy in size. I don't think that will happen. I think the RMB is certainly going to have a wild and interesting ride for the coming years, but I don't think it's going to become a, a dominant global reserve currency. So some of the hype, both the negative hype that the RMB may be collapsing in the short run or the positive hype that the RMB is going to take over, both of those, I think, are sort of overblown. Now, this getting the renminbi into the the SDR has been a goal of the Chinese for several years now, and there were a couple of times where the IMF said, "No, you're not ready. We need this, this, and this." Uh, why why were the Chinese so keen to have the yuan ascend to this this basket of currencies? Important Chinese policymakers, especially those in charge of the People's Bank of China, the Chinese Central Bank. Understand that, again, this is not going to be a game changer because ultimately China needs to have its economic policies right. It needs to have better financial markets before the yuan can become a truly important mm -hmm. global currency. But what they also recognized was that this provided a very useful framework for getting around the opposition to domestic reforms. From the perspective of the People's Bank of China, it would be better to have well-functioning financial markets. It would be better to have a market-determined exchange rate and a more cap open capital account because it makes their job easier in terms of using monetary policy to achieve domestic objectives. The problem is that all of those reforms butt up against very significant vested interests. But once the people of China and the leadership of China signed on to this notion that getting the RMB into the STR basket would be a good thing for China, especially in terms of its prestige. That allowed the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, to start pushing forward a variety of reforms over the last year. That would basically tick off the boxes that the IMF had put before China. So many things that happened last year, including measures to open up the capital account to both inflows and outflows, the liberalization of the deposit interest rate so that the entire interest rate structure uh, faced by banks is now, in principle, completely determined by them rather than the government. Uh, the um, institution of an explicit deposit insurance scheme. All of these are good for China, but they may not have happened, but for the fact that there was a framework and an urgency to get things done. Yeah, it, it starts raising a bunch of questions, but I, I think I want to ask two that I, I think might be somewhat related. Uh, the first one is just kind of to – and let me just get them out there and you can answer them in whatever order you want. The first one would just be kind of a follow-on to that is, you know, what more do they need to do to truly create a reserve currency? Uh, and the, the second one is what practical effects do you think this move will have – um, you know, in, in terms of, of world trade, in terms of people's daily lives outside of, of these very small finance circles, um, you know, is there any practical effect people can expect to see today and, in, in, you know, moving down the road? The IMF's official imprimatur is a wonderful thing to have for the Chinese government and for the RMB, but it's not going to be a game changer overnight. What ultimately matters for how much traction the currency gets in international finance depends on how easily foreign investors can get access to China's markets, how well developed those financial markets are, because ultimately foreign investors need to be able to acquire high quality renminbi denominated assets. 
there aren't enough of those. China does not have well-developed and well-regulated financial markets yet. So ultimately, that's what China needs to do, both for its own sake and for the sake of the RMB. Mm-hmm. And then do you think some of that um, you know, access, foreign access to China's markets – uh, that, that's still an issue for investors, correct? Certainly. That is a long way to go yet yeah. in terms of opening up the market. And it's an interesting um, uh, point of fact that although the uh, currency has entered the SDR basket, one of the other things the Chinese government was hoping to achieve uh, this year in 2016 was to get the Chinese A shares listed in the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. That did not happen because MSCI took a much stricter stance. They said, first of all, you have to tick off all the boxes that we have set for you to tick off. And more important, our investors need to be persuaded that you mean what you say. So, for instance, the Chinese government have said it's going to be easier for foreign investors in China's bond markets, both corporate and government bond markets, to repatriate their funds if they decided to sell their investments. But investors are not convinced. So... The RMB is in the STR basket, but the Chinese Asians are not in the MSCI index. Yeah. All right. Let's let's take a break on that note, and we will deliver this important message to you, and we will come right back with Eshwar Prasad, author of the new book, Gaining Currency. Rapid expansion? We're ready. Worker shortage? We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax. We've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. I'm Katie Hill. And I'm Quentin Fottrell. There's too many markets and more where we talk about the most fascinating personal finance stories of the week. The selfie now kills more people annually than sharks. 75% of Americans tip less than 20%. You want to collect Pikachu? Collect Pikachu. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a cotton picking minute. What's so special about a Pikachu? For more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast. Become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. And now look for us on the Google Play Music app on Android devices. Money. Market. And more. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. Paul in the studio today with Eshwar Prasad, author of the new book, Gaining Currency, The Rise of the Renimbi. And I just want to remind you folks that uh, if you're looking for some great podcasts out there, you can check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. We have a lot to offer you. Got Your Money Matters, the free-for-all speakeasy, tech news briefing, WSJ Opinion, What's News, and of course, Money Beat. But you already subscribed to Money Beat. I don't have to tell you about that one. You can follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts, and you can become a subscriber. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and also we are on your Google Play Music app on your Android devices. Uh, Eshwar, turning back to the Yuan, the Renimbi, one of the things I think is interesting is one of the arguments that Chinese started making in 2009 was that look at what happened to the global economy because of the dollar, because you have one sort of overarching reserve currency. It's dangerous to just have one. We really should have more than one. Oh, by the way, we have one called the renminbi. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of that argument that, that having one sort of global currency is, can be a problem? It can potentially be a problem because, after all, the U.S. has been able to run relatively undisciplined economic policies because the rest of the world is willing to finance U.S. Mm -hmm. government uh, uh, budget deficits and current account deficits by buying up a huge amount of U.S. government debt. So if the U.S. dollar did not have such a prominent role, especially as a safe haven currency, maybe 
there would be um, less ability of the U.S. to sort of uh, run undisciplined economic policies, and as the Chinese see it, also to thereby wreak havoc on the international financial system. Now, the question is, why is the U.S. in this dominant position? Mm-hmm. One reason, of course, is its economic size, but it also has very deep and um, ostensibly well-regulated financial markets. And in international finance, really, everything is relative. It's not that the U.S. is the paragon of good virtues in terms of financial markets and regulation, but it's certainly better than what is out there in most other countries. China feels that it has been financing U.S. current account deficits, and the unfortunate thing for China is that because of their currency policies, they've accumulated a huge amount of foreign exchange reserves, a lot of which they have no way to park but in U.S. Treasury securities, which are giving them a lousy yield. Um, so they feel trapped in this situation, and I think they would like to assert uh, more economic dominance, um, and they feel that the U.S. gets in their way. Yeah, I, I think I, I think you know, what, no matter what people think of, of, of China and the government and the leadership, and, and I know they have a lot of issues. I mean, the human rights issues alone are, are, are significant. I'm always amazed by how industrious they are as a nation and as a people. And, you know, they turn their mind to something and they, they just they just kind of will it into being. And I, I think part of, you know, turning the yuan into a global reserve currency is, is along those lines. I also think it's interesting that, you know, you look at the dollar and you look at the sort of, you know, the, the, the post-World War II global financial structure, Bretton Woods, all that, you know, you, you had a relatively – you know, I have to use air quotes here, folks. You know, can't see it, but I'm using it. You know, relatively stable sort of financial setup for the globe after World War II. Financial crisis comes along in 08. Now you have some some challenges to that. Um, the Chinese come out and they say, look, well, let's let's make the renminbi a, a global currency also. And you see they want to kind of divert a little of the, the dollar's power. And I know there's political stuff in there as well. But, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting – you look at the way the financial, the sort of global financial infrastructure, I think, is changing. And it's interesting. I was thinking about when you were coming in, one of the ways that that's reflected, I think, is, you know, there there are so many books now about money. And I think there always have been. But it just seems to, to me, and maybe because we're, I'm kind of in this circle now, it just seems like there, there's a lot more of them. I mean, you have this one now about the Renimbi. You had one just a year ago called The Dollar Trap. Uh, Felix Martin had had his book out. I wrote down a couple of them. Uh, there was Coined, a book by Kabir Segal, uh, The Evolution of Money by a couple of guys over Columbia University Press, David Orfel and Roman Tulpe. Uh, also, Debt, the First 5,000 Years, David Graeber's book, which is you know not specifically money, but it, it, it's about that. Do you think that we're in a period of uh, of, of significant change in terms of you know, just asking the question of what is money and what, what actually undergirds the financial system. In fact, in my book, I start off with Chinese monetary history, which goes way back, back to 200 BC, when many of the issues about the value of money that we're debating today were being debated by Chinese scholars. It also turns out that China, in fact, issued the first paper currency in the world during the Song Dynasty in the 7th century um, uh, AD. Um, Kublai Khan, as we know from the writings of Marco Polo, came up with the first fiat currency, a uh, paper currency that was not backed by commodities or uh, precious metals. It so, so Marco Polo reported on that? Yes, Marco Polo reported that Kublai Khan managed to make it a fiat currency 
currency essentially by saying that anybody in his domain who did not accept the currency would be put to death, which is one heck of a way of making a currency a fiat currency. But of course, money has come a long way since then. And you're right that there are big changes afoot. You write about some of these in your book with uh, Mike Casey on uh, um, Bitcoin. And I think we're going to see a divergence in the functions of money. Um, Bitcoin and many other um, uh, digital and um, national currencies are likely to become more important as mediums of exchange or units of account. So if you want to intermediate trade and financial transactions, such as, uh, say, oil contracts, there's no reason why all of these contracts should be in dollars. Right now, it's still very cheap to trade in dollars. It's the most Mm -hmm. liquid currency, but the RMB is catching up. Many other currencies are catching up. Um, And in fact, the Chinese were so frustrated not only that uh, um, their currency wasn't important, but they also had to rely for their international settlement on SWIFT, which they see as controlled by the U.S. So they've set up their own payment system right now, the China um, uh, interbank payment system, which is going to start domestic but can very easily be scaled up um, to an international payment system, can replace SWIFT even in terms of messaging. Um, But the question is whether all of these will displace the safe haven aspect of a currency, which is the store of value function. Now, that's where institutions become very important, because for that, you need not just a good payment system, but you also need the trust of foreign investors. And I argue in the book, this is where the renminbi will hit its limits. The renminbi could become a significant reserve currency if Chinese policymakers play their cards right by putting in place economic and financial market reforms. But President Xi Jinping has said political Legal and institutional reforms are off the table. Therefore, I argue the renminbi could well become a reserve currency, perhaps even a significant reserve currency, accounting for 5 to 10% of global foreign exchange reserves. But there's little prospect that it will become a safe haven currency, one that investors turn to for safety during times of financial turmoil. So I think the dollar is safe, at least in that dimension for right. now. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting on the, the, the sort of flip side of the Chinese argument that having just one global reserve currency can be dangerous because that country's problems get transmitted around the world through the currency. The flip side of that is, well, look at China. And if, if you know, it gets to the issue of trust. Do you trust that China's markets are open? Do you trust that your money is safe there? You know, I've been waiting for China to have a major crisis for like, I don't know, 12, 15 years. I mean, people have been talking about this, right? Oh, they're, they, they have this this absolute internal friction of they're trying to have a, a a government that has complete control over the economy, but they're trying to you know kind of have open markets. There there's a friction there, and people have been waiting for that to kind of hopefully not literally, but at least figuratively kind of kind of blow up and and become a problem. People have been waiting for China to melt down. They say the the economy is fundamentally unsound, but the government is papering it over. Yeah, all these issues. That I think go to the heart of what you're talking about when people talk about tr- trusting uh, a currency as a safe haven. I don't know if I even have a question there, Ashwa. I think I was actually just kind <laughs> of melting pick up off. On, on what you uh, said, um, uh, there is a fundamental contradiction in China right now that they're trying to put in place market oriented liberalization and reforms, but they don't want to give up stability and control. And right. these are two fundamentally contradictory impulses. So, as an academic, it's fascinating for me to see these conflicting impulses trying to be reconciled. And very often what you get are missteps and stumbles, what we saw in the stock market last year and in the currency markets towards the end of last year and early this year, all signals that these two fundamentally 
contradictory impulses cannot be reconciled. If you want markets to work, you have to let them work and you have to have a good institutional supporting architecture. You need good corporate governance in firms. You need good auditing and accounting standards. And you need corporate and government transparency, even when it comes to things like data. China doesn't have any of these. But despite all of that, China is still a pretty decently growing economy. So people will go there for diversification and yield. The question is whether they will go there for safety. And to that, my answer is no. And to go back to the first point you made, uh, if one thinks about the financial crisis, one thing that may have made it much worse if, if there were multiple reserve currencies out there and at a time when trust, even in the most uh, um, uh, long-standing of institutions, was failing, if you didn't have one currency, the dollar, that everybody trusted and could go to, perhaps things would have been a lot worse. The flip side of this argument, of course, is that because of the dollar's primacy, a lot of imbalances built up in the financial system. But when the crisis hit, everybody wanted dollars. And because the Fed had credibility and the trust of the international financial community, they could basically provide an infinite supply of dollars, which made things a little less worse. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, you, you know, thinking about Bitcoin for a second, too. There were, and you still have this. I mean, you still have people saying, well, what is it? And, and different courts come out with rulings and they say it is money, it isn't money. And tax agencies come out and say it is money, it is money. And I think it's... I used to think it was a question of people didn't understand Bitcoin, but I think now it's more a question of I, I, I really do think that the nature of money is changing and used to have a lot of different roles tied up in one currency. And I think we're starting to see, certainly through technology, that you can have some of those roles can be can be sort of split up and used in different things. Certainly the, the exchange of assets to have a, just a, a mechanism for transferring value that can be changed while you may not have a, a safe haven at the same time. I, I think some of that is changing, but I also think what your, your point is very interesting about just the dollar and the fact that you have so much behind the dollar on a global basis. I mean, it's not just the fact that it's such a large liquid currency. You have markets that have just been built up around it for decades. And that is something that can't be dislodged overnight. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners thought, you know, in 2013 and even 2014, oh, we've got a better mousetrap and we're going to build it in eight months. We're going to rule the world. And it just it didn't happen because human nature being what it is, people trust things that have worked for them in the past. And I think as, as much as I see change happening, you also you, you have to have and I think the Chinese are going to run into this problem. You, you you have to um, you have to get people to sort of get over their own preconceived notions, and when something works for them, they feel safe with it, they feel comfortable with it. They're just going to keep using it. That's exactly right. I think as a medium of exchange, as a unit of account, I see big changes coming over the next ten years. It'll be much easier to transact, say, between consumers and producers, mm -hmm. between investors in one country and recipients of their investment in another country, without using the standard sort of vehicle currencies we've been used to. But again, the question about the store of value, where you can put money um, so that you feel that it is safe, even if you're not getting a great return, that at least the safety part is uh, ensured, that I think will not change very easily because that requires a functioning government and good public institutions, including a trusted and independent central bank, the rule of law, 
and um, uh, checks and balances and an open system of government that are necessary to maintain faith in that currency. The U.S. dollar and most reserve currencies today have that. In fact, the distinction between a reserve currency and a safe haven currency did not really exist. I argue that it's become very important now that the Minbi is a player. All other reserve currencies have these institutional attributes that I mentioned. So the RMB is trying to uh, become a sui generis uh, reserve currency. We'll see if it works or not. My suspicion, again, is that given China's sheer economic clout and size and how everybody has wants to be friends with China because so many countries have strong trade and uh, financial relations with China that they want to uh, maintain and indeed uh, foster, um, you will get the RMB becoming uh, an important international currency. But again, um, as a safe haven currency, I don't see either the renminbi or digital alternatives, including Bitcoin, um, really playing a big role. Yeah, I, no, I, I, I don't either. I think it's a very interesting story. I still write about it. But yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. Uh, I just want to I was going to let you go, but I just wanted to make sure. I don't think we, we actually – I don't know if we specifically made this point, but I, I, I've seen other places where you've spoken. And in some ways, you mentioned the renminbi has become a reserve currency in – you know, it's not just, oh, now they're going to be in the, the special drawing rights there. They, they have – the renminbi has become a reserve currency to an, to an extent already, right? That is the remarkable thing about the renminbi. Um, typically, the prerequisites for a reserve currency used to include – having a completely market-determined rather than controlled exchange rate and an open capital account so foreign and domestic investors can move capital easily in and out of a country. China doesn't have either Mm -hmm. of these, but already it's become a reserve currency with um, many central banks around the world holding part of their reserve portfolios in RMB, certainly a very small share of global reserve portfolios, maybe 1% to 2%. But still, still, the notion has been that if China doesn't meet the prerequisites and is already a de facto reserve currency, when they actually open the capital account, when they actually have a flexible exchange rate, maybe it will take over. That's where I think the hype is overblown. They may get everything right on the economic front, and the RMB could become an important reserve currency if all of that happens, but it is going to plateau and will not rival the dollar. Right, right. Uh, but still, just shows how much things are changing, even over the last five, six, seven years. Probably will be more change in the future. We will leave it there. Eshwar Prasad, thank you for coming in today. Appreciate it. It's been my pleasure, Paul. Thank uh, you. The book is called Gaining Currency, The Rise of the Renimbi. It will be on the shelves very soon, if it isn't already. It might be in your bookstore already, maybe a couple copies. But if not, seek it out. Thanks for listening, and we will catch up with you very soon, everyone. Take care. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.